Would you join me in prayer as we begin and turn to God's word this morning? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, We want to thank you for your feedback so far this summer on our study of the book of Zechariah. Uh, I've enjoyed conversations in the garden court or on the phone, even a couple over lunch, uh, of how how this series has been challenging you, uh, encouraging you, troubling you, frustrating you, confusing you. Uh, Believe it or not, this is the very best kind of feedback that we can get, that you are thinking about these texts, that you are wrestling with these texts, that they maybe even trouble you a couple days after you've heard them. I I recognize, too, that some of you are just beginning to return from time away this summer, and and maybe you're feeling a little bit behind, and you don't have a lot of existing backlog on the book of Zechariah to rest upon, right? Uh, Not not a lot of knowledge leading up to this. So I'll encourage you, uh, if you're you're kind of re-engaging at the end of the summer here, to catch up on our podcast feed, to, to read this on your own. It's been a rich summer of study, and, and we've still got a month to go and several chapters. So there is some time for you to catch up on that as well. We are now firmly in the second half of the book of Zechariah, and there's a pretty big shift from a literary standpoint that's happening here. Most of the first six chapters uh, consist of a vision uh, that an angel reveals to Zechariah, and he transmit those, transmits those visions to the people. And these visions, what they do is they explain the current situation of the people of Israel in Jerusalem as they've returned from, from exile, from captivity in Babylon, and they are now picking up the rubble of the city, literally, but also the, the rubble of their lives as well, seeking to rebuild their lives after years of separation and really devastation. These visions are kind of wild as you read them. Uh, If you were here earlier this summer, you will remember that. But as we learned, they are also poignant and they are instructive for us. And then there's this brief break in chapter 7 with a a narrative that talks about the correct application for fasting for God's people. And then the book changes. It becomes a book of a certain kind of poetry known as oracles. Uh, They sound like prophecies, but they're in a a, a poetic form. Uh, The first of these came last week uh, in Zechariah chapter 8, where Zechariah shares this vision of a coming city of Jerusalem. As Joy told us, the vision is of an intergenerational park system, essentially, which is really a a beautiful vision. So what's the difference between a vision in the first half of the book and an oracle, kind of what we're heading into now? Um, Maybe it's helpful to think of visions sort of as parables, like object lessons, Visual stories with with some instruction and and a moral lesson for us. And then oracles are actually a little more mysterious. They're a little more slippery. Um, They are meant to bring meaning to the here and now of the people who are hearing those oracles. They're very time sensitive in that sense. But then they also project out into the future with hope. Sometimes these give warning, but usually they are meant to give a future hope. So that's what our text is today. The, the, the chapter 9 in Zechariah is one big oracle. I'd like to read that text for us today in its entirety. So I invite you to stand as you're able. And as you listen to this oracle, I'd like you to ponder what it might have meant to those people who were initially hearing this word 
And then also, what's the future that it's pointing towards? If you have your pew Bible or your own Bible, you may want to follow along with us. We're in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. An oracle, a word of the Lord, it is against the land of Hadrach and will rest upon Damascus. For the Lord belongs to the capital of Aram, as do all the tribes of Israel. Hamath also, which borders it, Tyre and Sidon. Though they, are very, though they are very wise. Tyre has built itself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and gold like the dirt of the streets. But now the Lord will strip it of its possessions and hurl its wealth into the sea, and it shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza, too, shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are withered. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mongrel people shall, shall settle in Ashdod. And I will make the end of the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan of Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. And then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that no one shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again overrun them. For now... I have seen it with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. For you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from a waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I will declare that I will restore you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow and made Ephraim its arrow, and I will arouse your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. And then the Lord will appear over them and his arrow will go forth like lightning. And the Lord God will sound the trumpet and march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall consume and conquer the slingers. And they shall drink their blood like wine, like a bowl full, drenched like the corners of the altar. And on that day, the Lord will save them. For they're the flock of his people. They're like the jewels of his crown and they shall shine on in his land. For what goodness and beauty are his? Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine as the young woman. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now, what did we just read? What did that word mean for those people who initially heard it? And what future does it point towards? What does this oracle actually mean? How do we read it? How do we interpret it? That's the big question for us today. And it's actually some, we're doing some bricklaying here today because this is going to help us with more oracles to come for the rest of of this series in the chapters to come. So to begin to answer that question, how do we read this? What did it mean to these people? I want to share a recent story. I think this will help. As a family, we were recently in an art museum that was totally new to me. I knew very little about the collection. And while I was strolling through with the family, I walked into a room with a Barnett Newman painting that I had uh, studied and I had no idea was in that museum. 
this is the piece. It's called The Moment One. It's from a series called The Moments uh, from 1962. And when I saw this piece, I audibly gasped because um, I love Barnett Newman. I love his paintings. And there's nothing cooler for me than like walking into a room and seeing a Barnett Newman that I didn't know was going to be there when it's a surprise. It's a real privilege. Um, my boys, uh, who are 17 and 15, they sidled up to me as I was standing in front of the canvas, and, and one of them said those words that no modern art connoisseur wants to hear anybody say, which is, I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. Other forms of this comment are, why is this so special? Or, worst of all, a five-year-old could have painted this. So as I heard that comment, I checked my blood pressure, and I began to explain this work uh, to my boys. I'm going to defend uh, the form of a Barnett Newman painting as brilliant until the day I leave this earth. But that said, I understand if you look at it with that flat question, what is this? What is it? Then you're probably going to look at this kind of painting and you're going to see two yellow lines on a, on a prime canvas. That's what you're going to see. But I explained to the boys that we have to look at an abstract piece like this from numerous angles. Numerous lenses, numerous angles. Why was it important when it was painted? What do you see? What does the form make you feel? What might be the larger commentary that's going on here? Why is this an incredibly expensive piece of art that is still worthy of hanging in a gallery wall in 2023? These are good questions to ask. So I had my boys walk up closer to the canvas and stand directly in the middle. And I told them to keep their eyes on the lines of the canvas. There's two yellow lines in there. They're kind of hard to see, but um, to, to keep their eyes on the lines of the canvas, Not lines which Barnett Newman called zips. That's what he called them. And I explained to them that before Newman was even a painter, uh, he was a brilliant math teacher and a philosophy junkie. Uh, I explained how meticulously um, he, he created these expansive canvases so that if you stood in the center of that canvas, your, your sight line, the, the line of your sight, your periphery sight, was consumed by the canvas. He did that on purpose. I explained how he was exploring color fields and geometry to make sense of a post-World War II Western world and how he was inviting people to stand in front of this piece and to get lost, to get introspective, to examine their lives. That each zip on the canvas is meant to be like the notch of a timeline as you're looking at your life. That you're meant to read your life on that canvas, with the zips being moments of decision, or moments of importance, or moments of trauma. Alvin, who's my 15-year-old, was staring intently at one of the lines and said, Dad, I, I can't focus on the line. It's like it's disappearing and it's falling into the canvas. And I explained to him that that is exactly what Barnett Newman intended to have happen, that he understood the way the human eye works, the way that it interacts with line and with color, and that the longer that you stand in front of it, the canvas starts to come alive. It starts to sort of swirl, kind of like our own lives. Newman's MO was strip everything down to its absolute basics because that's where the real human emotions and experience happen. In his own words, quote, size doesn't count. Scale, it's scale that counts. It's human scale that counts. And the only way you can achieve human scale is by true human content, end quote. So for me, I can't think of anyone who has a better handle of scale and space and content than Barnett Newman. And maybe I'm making up, but I thought the boys were a little impressed at my speech. Uh, you can ask them later. These two young men who watched a yellow line start to move, and it became deep theology, some of the deepest stuff that humans can explore. 
I might be overselling the impact, but I thought they got it. And as we exited the room, I did snidely say, do you still think a five-year-old could paint that? So similarly, with these oracles in Zechariah, and really the rest of prophetic literature, we need to look at it from different angles. It's not going to do for us to flatly just read Zechariah chapter 9 and say, what does it say? Or, this is weird. Or, I don't get it. We have to ask, what did it mean to the original audience? What does it point to in the future? How is it still speaking? What does it have to say about the human condition? So, my invitation is for you to stand squarely in front of this text. Right in the middle of it. Let it absorb uh, your, 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 your sight lines, and lose yourself in the size and the scale and the content of this text. And I think it'll come to life as well. Let's look at it from a few angles. First angle or lens that we can look at it. How was it received originally in Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C. when Zechariah shared this oracle with the people? Um, The text has three sections, and that's important to note. The first section, verses 1 through 8, are a proclamation of judgment against the enemies. That's all the names of those towns that I read there, cities. The second section is verses 9 and 10, which is really the heart of the passage, that speaks of a king who's going to come and, and is going to rule justly over the people. And then the third section, verses 11 through 17, give a vision of captives being freed, of God coming and, and setting things right and ultimately salvation for all of God's people and the whole of creation. So if we heard this message, this oracle, as Zechariah was giving it, as the people of God in Jerusalem, I think we would have reacted one of two ways. Either to say, I don't get it. That's not what I see. I don't see judgment against my enemies or a coming king or future a future vision of salvation i don't see those things i see rubble physical rubble that i'm stubbing my toes over and i see enemies and i see hardship and i see danger so i don't get this oracle i don't get it or you would find it very hopeful like a vision beyond your circumstances in spite of your current circumstances that gives you hope and perseverance to carry on It was intended for that initial audience to be a word in which they could experience scale and content that was beyond where they currently were. God's not going to allow your enemies to prosper. He's going to send you a good and just king. And he's going to come, and he's going to come as a judge, and he's going to make all things new in time. That's a hopeful message. That's how he wanted the people to receive that message. Angle number two, or lens number two. Did this word get richer over time? Oh, it sure did. It's, it's a really, really rich text when we look at the history. Um, be, and, and the reason it's so rich is because so much of this oracle has actually been proven as true. The lands of, of Hadrach and Aram and Damascus, those are all symbols of wealth. Those are real places. They were in the nation of Assyria, uh, a nation that was overrun not long after Zechariah had, had uh, delivered this oracle. Tyre and Sidon are noted as well. They are in modern-day Lebanon, uh, and they were symbols of military force. They were thickly-walled fortresses that were seen as uh, totally impenetrable. You cannot cannot conquer these cities. However, if you remember your history books from 8th or ninth grade, 
In the 4th century BC, there was this guy who went on an incredible 10-year run. His name was Alexander the Great. And he seized the city of Tyre and Sidon, a feat that everybody thought was impossible. Ashkelon and, and, and Gaza are also noted. Those are historic strongholds of the Philistine people. They're in modern-day Palestine. And they were symbols of idol worship. These cities were also conquered in the days of Alexander the Great, and then they were controlled by the Greeks by the end of the 4th century B.C. So, verses 1 through 8, all of these nations that are noted, and these towns that are noted, and what they symbolize, wealth and power and military might and idolatry, they were actually defeated. This, this oracle became true within 200 years of Zechariah uttering this, this oracle. All of those words in verses 1 through 8 had come true. And then the second section, about the coming king, we know about that one. And we know that came true as well. Because some 500 years after Zechariah was a man named Jesus Christ of Nazareth who rode into the holy city of Jerusalem on a humble donkey. And when this happened, the crowd that was there in Jerusalem got whipped into a frenzy because they knew the words of Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. They understood what was going on. That this oracle that they had memorized was being fulfilled in real time. It was getting richer right before their eyes. Let me stop here for a second and just note that this lens is most often, this this angle is, is how we most often read Zechariah 9. We read it on Palm Sunday, as we should. And we have this sense that this is a prophecy mostly about Jesus, and Jesus came, and now it's fulfilled. It's like a one-to-one thing. Close the book. This is what the text is about. But that's short-sighted, actually. It is certainly about Jesus, and Jesus makes it infinitely richer. But if we mi- And if we miss this connection to Jesus, we're missing a great deal in this text. But it's broader than that. And the reason I say that is because if we continue to read this oracle, it's one oracle, folks, 11 through, verses 11 through 17, I have a tough time saying that that has been fulfilled, don't you? Have we experienced a day of the Lord where Jesus comes back, the Messiah comes back, and where all of God's people, like jewels in his crown, shine like lights in the land for eternity? Has that happened? I don't think so. So there's great meaning in, in seeing many of these words fulfilled. They get richer over time. But just prophecy fulfillment shouldn't be our only lens or the final lens that we use. So a third and final lens that I'm going to encourage you towards is the word still speaking now. What's it saying to us right now? Um, As I gaze into this text, mindful of what it meant and, 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 and when it was given to those people and also aware of the new meaning that it has taken on, particularly in the person of Jesus on Palm Sunday, I, I really say that this text must still be speaking. This is not poetry that any human being could write. It's an oracle from God, faithfully transmitted by Zechariah. And its scope and its scale and its content still dwarfs me. And it still speaks to me. And it gives me reason for deep introspection in my own life. True, like most of you, as I read that first section, names like Hadrach and and Tyre and Sidon and Ashkelon, they don't mean anything to me. I don't think they probably mean anything to you either. But as I read that first section, I'm comforted to think of a God who defeats the enemies in my life. Not enemies in terms of people. I don't even think I have human enemies that I know of. But but enemies in the sense of those things that oppose goodness. 
that turn my heart from God. If God, as a king for the people of Israel, defeated the symbols of wealth and power and pride and idolatry back then, it's a great comfort and motivation to think that he could do the same thing for me in my life here and now. In the second section, the fact that the king rides into the holy city of Jerusalem on a donkey, triumphant in victory and yet with a humble heart, that means a great deal to me here and now. He doesn't ride in on a war horse with the spoils of war behind him. He rides in humble and poor and unassuming and ready to suffer for the sake of love. I know that king's name is Jesus, and I've committed my life to following him. So when I read this, I'm challenged yet again, as I am every single day, to model my life after him. Even with the power of God himself behind me and victory proclaimed over me, do I ride into each day humbly, unassuming, and ready to suffer for the sake of love? I'm working on it, folks. I'm not there yet. Is that the central call of my life? Yes, it is. Because if that's my king, then that's who I need to take my lead from. And that's who I get to model my life after. And then the third section, I read this and again I say it hasn't happened yet. The day of the Lord has not yet come to pass when Jesus returns and and judges with all righteousness and lifts the people of God uh, from, from where they are and welcomes them into his new creation for eternity. The fact that that is still to come doesn't shake my faith as if the oracle needs to be discarded because it hasn't happened yet. It gives me a vision of what I'm hoping in. It pulls my eye to that part of the timeline of my life, the end of my life, of humanity itself, and it fills me with wonder and it fills me with hope. So these multiple lenses help us read these oracles as they were intended. And I'm going to invite you to think about those angles, those lenses, and this kind of approach in the weeks to come. And really, anytime you read prophetic literature, because if we don't take the time to see this from multiple angles, we're so liable to just read this story and say, I don't get it, and move on. And I wouldn't blame you. If you read Zechariah 9, you're like, I don't know, I don't get it. A lot of people have done that to some incredible art as well. Barnett Newman or Jackson Pollock or Andy Warhol or Mark Rothko or Helen Frankenthaler. And that's a shame. You're missing out on some incredible art if you do that. But if we do that with the word of God, which is still speaking today, which is, which is alive and is active in our lives, how much the poorer are we? One last encouragement. This multiple angle or lens approach is also a good way to think of how God works in this world and works in our lives. I was reminded of, um, of a, a season of my life as I was reflecting on this text. Early on in my ministry here at Hinsdale Covenant, I still had notions that I might go back for more schooling, um, become a, a Bible professor, teacher, and, and I, I remember agonizing over this. I remember calling my grandpa, who was alive at the time, from my office desk upstairs, and, and I was laying out my woes to him. Uh, schooling's going to cost this much, and it's going to take years, and are there jobs on the back end of this degree or not? What am I gonna, what's going to happen with the, with the church here in Hinsdale, with my family, with myself? Should I do this or not do this? I was really agonizing over this decision. And he listened to me, and then he calmly said, Well, Lars, I think you should feel free to proceed. Pro- okay, proceed how? Which direction? And he said, Just Proceed. 
And I remember hanging up the phone and thinking, that's not an answer. That's not an answer. That doesn't make sense. I don't get it. And I wonder if that was the exact response of the Israelites to Zechariah when he gave this oracle to them. Okay, enemies defeated, a just and humble warrior king who's going to rule us, the day of the Lord and renewed creation. You're going to give us that word in the midst of what's going on in our lives right now? Did you even hear what we said? That's not an answer, Zechariah. That's not an answer, God. That doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. But it does make sense if we center ourselves on it and we stand in front of it and we let the scale of it dwarf us and we see God at work in ways that we can't initially see. If we trust that these words are going to increase in their meaning and get richer over time because God's faithfulness to those words grow as well. So I hear those words ringing in my ears now, just proceed And I see the way that God was working and angles in ways that I could not have ever known. They speak to a God who goes before us and whose word is good and faithful and will come to pass. And to his son Jesus, who's the center of our lives, the Lord of size and scale and content, whose character is trustworthy and good, and who is at work in layers that we could not imagine, who is worthy of the rightful place as the very center of our stories and our attention, the canvas on which our lives come alive. Triumphant, victorious, humble, and gentle of heart, the one who's going to bring about a new creation that is worthy of our May we continue to model our lives after this king. I want to invite you to pray with me as we move to the communion table this morning. We have a responsive prayer that will be up on the screen for you. It's from Palm Sunday. uh, And your part is quite easy in this prayer. It's just simply to say, Hosanna to God. Hosanna to God in the highest. Let's pray together. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his love endures forever. And all who fear God say, his love endures forever. With the Lord on our side, What can we fear? What can humankind do? The Lord is our strength and our might. The Lord has become our salvation. Hosanna to God.